Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Friends, welcome back. I am so happy that you're here again. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we've had some very unhealthy air. Some would even say it was toxic. Thankfully, the rain that always promises us to loom every day finally broke through and washed away all of the smoke. I wish you well, my fellow Seattleites, and remember to wear a mask out there on those smoky days. You only get your one set of lungs. I do have some really exciting news. I finally got a picture of Andromeda's rock. It's just a little rock, out in the middle of water. Not at all what I pictured. Still, the best picture ever, and I'm going to cherish my rock pick for life. Thank you to the youngest Vardy. This week, I wanted to expand on Pythagoras and how his work influenced Plato. In order to understand what Plato meant, we have to dig deep into his psychology. Plato was influenced by the Pythagorean mystery religion well into his earlier works and way before Plato wrote about Atlantis. Both Plato and Pythagoras had a vision of a perfect society. I am pretty active in the deaf community. Yes, I, I do know American Sign Language, and I talk with those who lack the ability to hear. One of the most common misconceptions that deaf people have is that our son doesn't make any noise. This is especially interesting, as astronomers are able to determine life on other planets based on the sound that they make. Each object has a sound resonance that can enhance or destroy any given object. Just like the singer who can break glass just with her voice. The human body is no different. So now let's take a moment to assign numbers to musical notes. We actually do this every day with computers. Can we all say auto-tune? If a sound could be mathematically orchestrated, what sound would a computer make? Could we mathematically calculate a human? Could I mathematically predict my future child based on gene expression and sound alone? Could a god be a number? All of these questions and more were pondered 3,000 years ago. Pythagoras and Plato spent most of their professional years pondering just those same questions. It was Pythagoras who popularized the idea of a human having a soul and reincarnation. Could our next lives be mathematically deduced? As usual, my sources are linked in my episode description. All things are numbers. That's a saying attributed to Pythagoras himself. A squared plus B squared equals C squared is the most well-known theorem of Pythagoras. However, Pythagoras was more than just a triangulator. 
He was also a philosopher, a musician, and mathematician. Pythagoras was born on the small island of Samos, and that's located on the western shores of modern-day Turkey in the North Aegean Sea. He was born in about 570 BCE and died in 495 BCE. For context, this is before Herodotus and before Plato, and roughly around the same time as Solon. Pythagoras influenced Plato, whose dialogues, especially his Timaeus, exhibit Pythagorean teachings. Herodotus states that Pythagoras taught his followers how to attain immortality, although the exact details of Pythagoras' teachings are uncertain it's possible to reconstruct a general outline of his main ideas. Aristotle writes at length about the teachings of the Pythagoreans, but without mentioning Pythagoras directly. One of Pythagoras's main doctrines appears to have been the belief that all souls are immortal, and that after death, a soul is transferred into a new body. This teaching is referenced by Xenophanes Ion of Chios and Herodotus. Another belief attributed to Pythagoras was that the harmony of the spheres, which is in quotes, which maintained that the planets and stars move according to mathematical equations, which correspond to musical notes and thus produce an inaudible symphony. Pythagoras taught that the seven muses were actually the seven planets singing together. In his philosophical dialogue, Protrepticlus, Aristotle has his literary double saying, quote, when Pythagoras was asked why humans exist, he said, quote, to observe the heavens. And he used the claim that he himself was an observer of nature, and that it was for the sake of this that he had passed over into life, unquote. Pythagoras was said to have practiced divination and prophecy. In the visits to various places in Greece, like Delos, Sparta, Phileas, Crete, etc., which are ascribed to him, he usually appears either in his religious or priestly guise, or else as a lawgiver. According to Aristotle, the Pythagoreans used mathematics for solely mystical reasons, devoid of practical application. They believed that all things were made of numbers. The number one, the monad, represented the origin of all things. It was both an even and an odd number. I guess it would also be a prime number. And therefore considered sacred. The number two, also known as the dyad, represents matter. The number three was considered the ideal number because it had a beginning, middle, and end, and was the smallest number of points that could be used to define a plain triangle, which they revered as the symbol of the god Apollo. The number four signifies the four seasons and the four elements. The number seven was also sacred because it was the number of planets and the number of strings on a lyre and because Apollo's birthday was celebrated on the seventh day of each month. They believed that the odd numbers were masculine and that even numbers were feminine. 
and that the number five represented marriage because it was the sum of two and three. Ten was regarded as a perfect number. The Pythagoreans honored it by never gathering in groups larger than ten. Pythagoras was credited with devising the Tetractus, the triangular figure of four rows which added up to the perfect number of ten. The Pythagoreans regarded the Tetractus as a symbol of utmost mystical importance. The Pythagoreans recognized the existence of nine heavenly bodies. So that would be the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the so-called Central Fire. So important was the number of ten in their view of cosmology that they believed that there was a tenth body, or a counter-Earth, perpetually hidden from us by the Sun. So it's interesting to know the planet X has gone back as far as Pythagoras. Both Plato and Isocrates stated that, above all else, Pythagoras was known as the founder of a new way of life. The organization Pythagoras founded at Croton was called a quote-unquote school, but in many ways it resembled a monastery. So the adherents were bound to a vow to Pythagoras and each other for the purpose of pursuing the religious and ascetic observances and of studying his religious and philosophical theories. The members of the sect shared all their possessions in common and were devoted to each other to the exclusion of outsiders. Ancient sources recorded that the Pythagoreans ate meals in common after the manner of the Spartans. One Pythagorean saying was all things in common amongst friends. The Pythagoreans had a vow of silence for five years, and that was their trial to become an official member of the Pythagorean cult. One of the things that you had to do before you could even get to that trial was to sell all belongings. So you got rid of your house, you got rid of your horses, you got rid of all your material possessions, so that you could take a vow of silence for five years. If you adhered to all of the rules and you didn't speak, then you would be able to meet Pythagoras and you would be accepted amongst each other. Now, I'm not quite sure what the allure the Athenians had on the way of life of the Spartans but they were constantly comparing themselves to the Spartans. I guess the Athenians thought that that was the ideal way of life. Drinking cold blood soup and wishing for death, I think. They did have everything in common, they did share everything, so I guess I could see a lot of it. But if we're going unto the thought about how Pythagoras or even Plato was thinking, they idealized the Spartan society. Anyway, back to my story. Two groups existed within the early Pythagoreanism. The Mathmakoi, or the learners, and Akustamakoi, which would be listeners. The Akustamakoi 
were traditionally identified by scholars as old believers in mysticism, numerology, and religious teachings, whereas the Mathmakoi were traditionally identified as more intellectual, modernist faction who were more rationalist and scientific. There was probably not a sharp distinguish between them and that many Pythagoreans probably believed the two approaches were compatible. The study of mathematics and music may have been connected to the worship of Apollo. The Pythagoreans believed that music was a purification for the soul, just as medicine was a purification for the body. One anecdote of Pythagoras reports that when he encountered some drunken youths trying to break into the home of a virtuous woman, he sang a solemn tune with long spondees and the boys, quote, raging willfulness was quelled. The Pythagoreans also placed particular emphasis on the importance of physical exercise. Therapeutic dancing, daily morning walks along scenic routes, and athletics were a major component of the Pythagorean lifestyle. Moments of contemplation at the beginning and end of each day were also advised. The impact that the simplicity and exactness of the Pythagorean portions had on the philosopher Plato is revealed most clearly in his late dialogue Timaeus, in which Timaeus, a man trained in the Pythagorean doctrine, describes the origin and nature of the physical world. Central to this cosmological drama is the demiurge, a kind of primary arranger who begins with formless matter in a primitive state of chaos. He proceeds by using a fixed set of numbers to construct the soul of the world as a mixture of metaphysical oppositions. So it's indivisible and divisible at the same time. Kind of like quantum computing. You can have yes, no, and also simultaneously yes and no. Successive lengths of primary material are mixed in the ratios of 2 to 1, 3 to 2, 4 to 3, and 98. That is exactly the Pythagorean harmonic ratios. Thus, the world's soul is constructed as a harmony of opposites permeated by number in which the formative principles of Platonic cosmology are identical to those of Pythagorean harmonic theory. In the following section, Plato turns to the construction of physical universe as a, quote, eternal image moving according to number. The seven celestial bodies, the moon, Mercury, Venus, and the sun, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter are created and placed in orbits about the Earth, determined by these same harmonic ratios. According to this model, the sun is located at the midpoint of a seven-note scale of revolving bodies. The whole thing is contained within an outer starry sphere that sets the limits of the universe. In his Republic, written some 30 years before Timaeus, Plato has used striking imagery rather than mathematical relationships to describe his harmonic universe of planetary spheres. Quote, and on the upper surface of each circle is the siren, who goes round with them, hymning a single tune or note. Together they form a concord of a single harmony, 
or musical skin. Let me begin by observing, first of all, that 9,000 was the sum of years which had elapsed since the war. The sum of years adding to all the years together to come up with 9,000. I did this once, and that would be adding 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 to eventually come up to between 100 and 121 years. So let's dig a bit deeper as to what Plato actually meant. The Pythagoreans recognized the existence of nine heavenly bodies, the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the so-called central fire. So important was the number 10 in their view of cosmology that they believed that there was a 10th body, right? The counter-Earth. The Pythagoreans invested specific numbers with mystical properties. Again, the number one was symbolized unity in the origin of all things, since all other numbers are created from one by adding enough copies of it. For example, seven could be equal to one plus 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 one. The number two was a symbolic of the female principle, three of the male. They came together in a two plus three equals five as marriage. All even numbers were female, all odd numbers were male. The number 4 represented justice. The most perfect number was 10 because 10 equals 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4. This number symbolized unity arising from multiplicity. Moreover, it was related to space. A single point corresponds to 1, a line to 2 because a line has two extremities, a triangle to 3, and a space to four. Thus, 10 also symbolizes all possible spaces. The Pythagoreans were especially fascinated by the presence of numbers in the natural world. Perhaps their most spectacular discovery was that musical harmony is related to simple whole number ratios. A string, such as that on a violin, produces a note with a particular pitch. A string one-half as long produces an extremely harmonious note to the first. It's now called the octave. A single two-thirds as long of a note produces the next most harmonious note, now called the fifth. And one three-fourths as long of a note produces the fourth, also very harmonious. The Pythagoreans discovered these facts empirically by experimenting with strings of different lengths. Today, these harmonies are traced to the physics of vibrating strings, which move in patterns of waves. The number of waves that can fit in a given length of string is a whole number, and these whole numbers determine the simple numeric ratios. When the numbers do not form a simple ratio, the corresponding notes interfere with each other and form a discordant beats that are unpleasant to the ear. The full story is a bit more complex, involving what the brain becomes accustomed to, but there is a definite rationale behind Pythagorean's discovery. In Plato's work, The Republic, he uses years without the use of the word sum of. For example, here are some quotes. Quote, And what is the prime of life? May it not be defined as a period of about 20 years in a woman's life and 30 in a man's? Quote, which years do you mean to include? 
A woman, I said, at 20 years of age may begin to bear children to the state and continue to bear them until 40. A man may begin at 5 and 20 when he has passed the point at which the pulse of life beats quickest and continue to beget children until he be 55. End quote. Quote, at the age when the necessary gymnastics are over, the period whether of two or three years which passes and this sort of training is useless for any other purpose. So that was in Republic. Now listen to how Plato says it in the Timaeus. Quote, on one occasion, wishing to draw them to speak of antiquity, he began to tell about the most ancient things in our part of the world, about Pharaonius, one who is called the first man, and about Niobe, and after the deluge of the survival of Ducleon and Pyra, and he traced the genealogy of their descendants and reckoned up the dates, tried to compute how many years ago the events of which was speaking happened. She founded your city a thousand years before ours, receiving from the earth and his Festus, the seed of your race, and afterwards she founded ours, of which the constitution is reported in your sacred registers to be eight thousand years old. As touching your citizens of 9,000 years ago, I will briefly inform you of their laws and of their most famous action. Historians and scholars agree that there was neither in Athens nor in Egypt that was ready to fight a war with ships, chariots, and horses 9,000 years before Solon's time. Furthermore, Plato specifically uses the word Hellenes to refer to the people who came from Athens. Ancient writers had a name for the race of humans who lived in the regions of Attica prior to the Hellenes, and they were called the Pegalicians, and were often described as, quote, barbaric, meaning they did not speak Greek. Prior to being called the Pegalicians, the inhabitants were called the Cranii. So either 9,000 years is the sum of 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5, etc., until you reach 121, or or there was just one zero too many for 9,000, or 9,000 was just an arbitrary number, like when we say a long time ago in a place far, far away. I once found a historical author who also used 9,000 years ago, and it was even more obvious that what he was meaning to say was a long time ago in a place far, far away. However, I have yet to been successful defining it again, so please reach out if you come across it. I'll be eternally grateful. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then.